You're listening to the Crypto Markets Wiki podcast, brought to you by John Lothian News. Welcome to the Crypto Markets Wiki podcast. I'm Matt Rabel, and I'm joined here with Tom Johnston, an editor at JLN News. We are recording this on Wednesday, December 16th. In the past 24 hours, there have been a couple of pretty big stories that have dropped concerning two hometown heroes, two large organizations located here in Chicago, the CBOE and the CME Group. SIBO, as uh, we like to call them, affectionately so, they have announced they're getting back into the crypto game with uh, a new partnership with CoinRoots, which, Tom, you were talking a little bit about CoinRoots earlier. Yeah, they're an order routing network. So they, you know, they have customers and their proposal is that they will route customers' orders to the best uh, crypto exchanges for execution. So this is for SIBO, who wants to get into the, the ETP, exchange-traded products space with crypto. This is maybe a big deal because this will help them get past the SEC's concerns about fake prices. When whatever goes over CoinRoots is, coin is actually um, a transaction. So it's actually a priced thing and people are committed to it. It's not um, just nominal uh, noise going through. So this could help them with that. They didn't mention anything about futures or um, options. So maybe they are tired of that subject. Yeah, they were the first major traditional exchange anyway. Uh, that is to say, a, not, not a crypto exchange, which tends to be, you know, Coinbase, excuse me, Kraken, you know, centralized order book type of exchanges that aren't quite the, don't work quite the way the traditional exchanges do. But anyway, SIBO was the first to offer Bitcoin derivatives back in the day for those who would like a history lesson. And the CME group was hot on their tail. I think, uh, I think it was within a week of each other, they both dropped Bitcoin futures. Now, of course, SIBO has been out of the game for a bit. And the CME group has been dominating the crypto derivative space, specifically related to Bitcoin. But now they are moving into Ether. That yes. was the other big news today. Yes. Yes. So have a cash settled Ether futures contract starting February 8th, 2021. Oh, boy. Yes. Wow. Let's see if they will be as quiet about this launch as they were about the Bitcoin one. They seemed fairly reluctant to get into Bitcoin. Maybe they will be more aggressive about the Ether contract. They have dazzling new pages on their website for Ether. I think it's called Ether-Dollar Futures or something. Um, but it's, they've done a little bit more promotional kind of work than they did for the Bitcoin thing. So maybe they will be twice as successful. Um, maybe. With Ether, yes. But they are very success successful with the Bitcoin futures and options on Bitcoin futures. Do you think SIBO getting into Bitcoin ETPs now, now that especially now that CME has, CME is pretty dug in as far as the market goes in terms of crypto derivatives. I think it's a smart move for them to kind of focus on ETPs, which is not, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think that that's something that CME has gotten too involved in yet. 
Oh no. Well, CME can't because ETPs have to be on a, on a securities, an SEC regulated exchange. And so they are protected from competition with the CME. But there, everybody wants to do an ETF, an ETN, you know, um, Bitcoin-related one. So they will have plenty of competition. They won't get a free ride from anywhere. No. Yeah. What the last news is breaking as we speak, and that is that Bitcoin is above $20,000 oh. for the first time. Yes. How could I forget? Yeah, I was, um, I was just looking at, like, I think, coin market cap. Tom and I were discussing before we started recording this podcast. And I think it was like 20,700 something. And then I looked over at Coindesk and it was even higher. So at this point, you know, Bitcoin speculation is, should always be taken with an extra big grain of salt, but like it's moving upward quite quickly. Don't take that as investment advice. It's just my personal observation. But knowing this, knowing this market that could literally reverse on a dime. Later today, it could it could sink back to 16,000 or something. I don't know. But that's still impressive. It's never been that high before. Nope. And traders, I think, hope that we'll just keep going higher. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, because that's actually the only, still the only use case for it is to put it away and hope that it will increase in value. Yeah. The bull market is forever. Don't contradict me. I'm definitely not wrong. That's, that's how this racket goes. Speaking of Bitcoin regulation, the UK Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA, has, well, over the past, I thought that this would be a topic that would be interesting to touch on at least, as uh, this will be our last podcast for the Crypto Markets Wiki podcast of the year. The UK has placed a pretty firm, pretty blanket ban on cryptocurrency derivatives this year. And recently they put out a notice saying that companies that have operated after January 10th, 2020 will get a temporary registration from January 9th to July 9th of 2021, but only if they registered with the FCA previously. So those who have been trying to fly under the radar are still in trouble. And all firms, of course, will have to abide by existing KYC AML regulations. So I thought, I thought this was kind of interesting because it seems like every time I open up my inbox, there's a new... There's a new press release for some company in the UK trying to launch a new product. And my thought every single time is like, this is the worst possible time to like, you know, how, how are people still doing this? Um, that's a good question. How are people still doing it? Um, so the FCA ban, I think makes it a lot more or makes it, yes, a lot more like the US where we don't really have retail access to retail crypto derivatives. So I'm assuming that the futures that are traded at CME and at ICE will be still tradable in the UK after this ban, or maybe the ICE and the CME will register in order to keep up getting retail business if there is any retail business coming out of the UK. But the stuff that's not, that's being banned you know, squashed or quashed or whatever. Those things are not available in the U.S. anyway. So it, it's, I think it's England kind of following the U.S. A lot of times, you know, people in the crypto space say, oh, we want clear regulations. Business would be so much better if we knew where the lines were. Well, what they always mean is that they want to draw some lines and know where those lines are. And the regulator would know where those lines were. Yeah. But 
this is just a, you know, the, the regulator coming down and saying, okay, well, we've had lots of experiments. We've seen lots of things going on. This is where we're drawing the line and it's our line and you've got to live with it. It's yeah. similar to the U.S. It's not a, it's not so draconian. The lack of noise, public noise. So, you know, complaints on Twitter and uh, letters to the editor at Coindesk and Cointelegraph and, and all. They're, there have been very few. It's been very quiet. And I think that might indicate that there really wasn't all that much interest in the UK, except for, you know, bookie types of uh, deals, you know, Ladbrokes and, and things. And maybe some of the CFD, the um, Contract for Difference Traders, would get involved from time to time. But I, since there's been so little pushback, it seems to me that there probably wasn't all that much business there. It really, it really uh, surprises me that there hasn't been more development in the crypto space in the UK because it seemed like there was, it seemed like there was a lot of interest there. What with the, uh, when did they, do you remember when they, they had announced some, some organization, it may have been the FCA or announced, it was like a year or two ago, they announced a regulatory sandbox, but then I, I never heard anything after that. Did you ever hear anything? Um. No, not that I, no. But sandboxes usually don't create a lot of news, you know? Yeah, um, that's true. So maybe that was it. Well, the other thing is like London is such a huge financial center, right? It's, it is it, this month. <laughs> <laughs> and so you, you would think that with such a, a disruptive technology as cryptocurrency tends to be, and as, as much of a buzzword as cryptocurrency and Bitcoin have been, as it seemed like there was interest at first, but there hasn't been that much trading volume coming out of the UK, at least compared to the United States. You know what I mean? A lot of the development in the crypto space has come from innovation in the United States. It, it, but part of it, that might be that the FCA has been, it seems like they've been a, a, a bit more well, a bit less forgiving and a bit more skeptical of digital assets. Yeah, I think that's probably fair to say. Um, the, I think what has happened in the UK, has, and this goes back to why the ban is not so um, problematic in, in the UK, but the development in the UK has gone much more toward the professional traders and, and higher levels. So I think there's significant brokerage and trading support um, and OTC trading out of England. And I'm thinking of companies like LMAX and, or LMAXia, which has, and that's, that comes because they're trading um, FX already. And so they kind of moved into that and are offering the same FX traders opportunities in crypto. So it's been a different, in a lot of places, it's been, I think, a more organic growth because FX is so big in London. We have B2C2, which announced yesterday that it was acquired by SBI Holdings, the Japanese firm, Yeah. in a deal that is sort of surprising because B2C2, I think, was extremely well thought of and did very well as a standalone company and why what its prospects are being tied up to a 
huge, perhaps bureaucratic Japanese investor. Uh, the implications of that are are not clear to me, but um, but they were London based too. There are a few more that are are like that. Uh, a lot, some of the analyses firms I think are are based. Um, Chainalysis, maybe. Oh has, yeah, they are UK based. Forgot yeah. about them. So a couple of people like that, but not not so much directly in trading as we think of it. Yeah, I didn't mean to undersell the um, the innovations that have come out of the UK earlier when I said that a lot of it has come from the US. I was mainly speaking about trade volume. Yeah. For the record. Yes. Just wanted to get that out there before we move on to your favorite topic, Tom Thompson. Libra? Uh, you mean Diem. No, I mean Libra. <laughs> so, um, actually, I have seen, and I've not read all of this so closely because it's still, um, there's not that much public that is solid information. So I think I'll wait until the Swiss give them final approval or whatever approval um, they give them to launch. And then I'll dig in a little bit more deeply. But I've read a couple of places that Libra is the name of the network and the coins are going to be called DMs. So it's like, gotcha. it's like Ether on the Ethereum blockchain. This will be DM on the Libra. I guess they still call it a blockchain. I'm not sure what how much block chaining is left in, in the in the design. But they are moving closer to reality. They, again, I have not looked as closely as I probably should have, but I have will have more time as the year winds down. But it looks like they are setting up more access points into the system so that you will not have to be a Facebook customer of any sort in order to participate in DM. So, That's smart. Yes, yes. Given um, all the negative press that Facebook has had for the past year and a half. Yes. Yeah, I think Facebook listened in a lot of ways to all the pushback they got. And they got enormous, well, they got a lot of pushback. And the, I don't know what the Swiss are going to probably, are going to be requiring. I would have imagined that having it be somewhat open as a platform. So allowing other access points other than, you know, other than Facebook, WhatsApp and other things that, that they're controlling. But I think the Swiss, in the European spirit, European regulation tends to be, especially EU and Switzerland is not in the EU, but they all have this idea of, of equal access. And they're always very concerned about that other people be able to get into the system. So I think that might be where this opening up came from, from regulatory pressure from the Swiss. Mm. So, uh, but uh, it'll be interesting to see what this, what they intend to do with all of this. It's not clear, you know, how, how the network is going to work, if there's going to be, for example, a market in DMs, or is it just going to be a dollar straight dollar stable coin. I mean, there could still be a, a market in that, but I mean, it won't be much of a market if it's, you know, one DM is equals $1. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely gone through a lot of revisions. It's the, the project has seen 
more scrutiny than any other tech project, I think, in recent memory. And it seems it seems like there's a lot going on at Facebook right now. A lot of a bunch of executives just left, and apparently they left uh, kind of open letters to and about the company that were pretty savage uh, parting shots, is what I understand. One of the people who first incepted the concept of Libra, one of the people behind the project, also has left the company for a VC firm. I'm talking about Morgan Beller, who is a former Facebook employee who kind of, I think she's credited with being kind of the brainchild behind the whole project. And But anyway, it seems like she has left the company, which not 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 the best sign, but you know, she's clearly interested in the VC space and she's been there for a few years. But I, uh, I took that as kind of, kind of a, a bad sign. Whatever the Libra network and whatever DM ends up being in terms of its final project, you know, hopefully it can work in a way that is fair to consumers and doesn't subvert government regulations or any of the other things that Congress and so many other regulatory agencies have been terrified of since the beginning. Well, talking about regulation, uh, I also wanted to mention that BitMEX, um, well, I wanted to talk about BitMEX for a bit because there is a lot going on with BitMEX right now, and it has been for a few months now. Obviously, their CEO, Arthur Hayes, stepped down or was forced to step down. It's not really clear. And uh, they have seen a number of uh, lawsuits alleging that alleging market manipulation and other nasty things. What do you? What do you? What's your take on Bitmax, Tom? That's just sour grapes, you know. These uh, no um, Bitmax. I mean, I they were pretty aggressive. They came out of the box aggressively. They had some very good ideas. I think their guarantee fund, how it was structured basically by taxing profits. So if you had a position and, and, and when you closed it out, it was in a winning position, winning place, when you got your margin back or any profits in margin, you paid a tax of you know, like 10th of a percent and people who lost didn't pay anything. So it built up over time, it, it's built up lagged volume a little bit, slightly, but not very much became meaningless in the long run. So that was probably a very good idea. What but they had they kept costs down by not doing AML KYC and possibly they increased profits by blowing out customers uh, improperly. So that's where the manipulation stuff comes from. But the CFTC charged them with running, you know, with selling futures to Americans essentially. And that's a civil offense. You don't really get arrested for that. But the criminal case is on bank secrecy and uh, money laundering. And it's not clear what the feds, what the Department of Justice has on BitMEX, but it charged the principals, the three owners and two senior staff people personally as individuals for some of this. Or maybe it got at least the three owners the um, other two may have only been on the CFTC side or, or, or something, but um, they're serious about that. They got the, they've been, they've had these causes of action, reasons to do this for a number of years and they've been building it up, but they finally had access to one of the principals so they could arrest him. They, 
and uh, sort of throw him in jail, which got the attention of the uh, other two principals in sitting in Hong Kong, I guess, or Singapore. I think it's their Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, the same time, Hong Kong is supposed to be putting in regulations for crypto exchanges. So I think that might be why Hayes and the other two's founders stepped down from their positions because they probably wouldn't have been allowed to continue in those positions while they're under indictment, according, and that, that would be a prohibition according to Hong Kong rules. But we haven't really learned a lot. We don't really know what the money laundering aspects are of the violations yeah. of the Bank Secrecy Act. Yeah. But clearly they were, they, were, they were trading swaps and futures and they seem to be getting a U.S. business. Uh, that's their big problem. Do you think maybe part of their business model technically violated KYC AML because, I don't, I don't know, maybe there's like a practice that is common in money, money laundering and for that reason it's illegal, but that isn't actually, wasn't actually done to technically launder money? Do you think that maybe there's some wires getting crossed with the regulations or do you think that it's the allegations are probably spot on? Um, well, I, so clearly they did not collect sufficient AML KYC because there were plenty of Americans who were trading. Mm -hmm. And that would have, if they had had decent controls, that would have caught them. So on the sort of day-to-day -day level, that's probably clear. The, but I don't think the government really would have gone after them. They would have fined them or slapped them on the wrist or something, and it would have been a different kind of set of findings. So there probably is some real money laundering going on, and that can be for, I mean, it's not necessarily for the very worst kinds of crimes, not necessarily for, you know, um, human trafficking or drug sales, but it could be for tax evasion, people, you know, taking positions and, and trading through Bit BitMEX to mask uh, profits and, you know, other profits and losses. It, it can also be for evading currency controls that some country, many countries have, um, not the U.S., but other countries. So I think there's probably plenty there. Some dirty laundry being moved around. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, a lot of it's probably, you know, don't ask, don't tell, you know, yeah. just, they just look the other way. All right. Well, the last thing that we have to talk about today for the end of the year is DeFi, which has been a huge subject pervasively throughout the year for good reason. Uh, the space is kind of blowing up and everyone from traditional sorts of fintech firms to established cryptocurrency exchanges have at least expressed a passing interest in DeFi. But uh, I think a handful of protocols in particular have, have really kind of dominated the news, especially in the past six months. So um, yeah, there's a lot to talk about in, in, this, in this kind of rodeo Tom Thompson, what do you uh, what do you think the biggest story this year was? Um, but, but probably the centralization <laughs> of decentralized finance. So, Yearn, why Earn came out sometime in the summer, and they got some traction, and they were doing okay. They they sat by and watched Sushi Swap steal liquidity from Uniswap. Uniswap was the biggest one ever until it wasn't any longer. So, but 
you know, the Sushi Swap came out and had a little, I forget what their claim to fame was, but it was a brief claim to fame. A lot of people received rewards by moving their staked Ethereum and other things, and stable coins and, and uh, other things, DAOs and, and other stable coins, moving them from uh, Uniswap into SushiSwap. And what was interesting about that was the demonstration that the DeFi protocols are just DeFi protocols. They are not property. There, there aren't, there doesn't seem to be a real set of, it's really very, very decentralized in that sense. There aren't investors in it and things like that. There are participants who, who stake uh, money into these into the systems and there are market makers behind it. But each one of those entities or firms or persons is acting very individualistically and not under the control. But then in November, a lot of these swap, these platforms sort of lost their liquidity. Three or four different ones lost their money because they, they were hacked. And so they were ended up being merged into Yearn. And again, Yearn really doesn't have anything, doesn't own anything. It's really just a melding of little communities into a bigger community. It's like, you know, when the city takes over some of the suburbs, you know, it's... Yeah. Yeah. Um, the suburbs all still like to think that they're their own little things, but they're not. They're just part of, of the city. Yeah. So that's what, that's what has happened so far. Yeah. I, I just think, I just still think that it's... Um, Maybe not for the people involved, but in a schadenfreude sense, I just think it was kind of funny how Ethereum's, Ethereum had a DeFi protocol that was kind of bugged out for a bit by a fork that was totally unplanned. And it was bugged out by the very thing that that fork was designed to prevent. <laughs> talking about the Geth bug, of course. Geth, yes. Um, yeah, the, I personally, I like the idea of DeFi a lot. It's way too early in the game to to think of it being used for real things. So right now, it seems to be just used. It's just for betting. It's just for you know inflation trading or whatever. It has no, I think, no touch points to the real economies. But eventually, you know, what DeFi is is a system of, or it's a, not a system. It's a protocol whereby like-minded people sort of get together and meet and they transact and they can they could transact corn and wheat they could transact securities they could transact derivatives on securities there's still problems with the clearinghouse and things like that and there will probably be i mean none of this works it once it becomes real because then you're going to have real people who have real money constraints. Right now, everybody, everything's 100% collateralized and things like that. But that's not how real modern economies run. So people borrow money, people put up margin, things like that. And so once that, those systems get worked out, this could be very promising because it could open up trading. It could open up, I mean, trading has sort of gotten a, a bad word in the crypto world because it is really just pushing money around so far. But if you're talking about trading corn and wheat and steel, it could be real, really, really valuable to be able to broaden the market and have these smart contracts, subtle things that could bring a lot of transparency. It could level playing fields a lot. 
but in order to do that, you probably have to have clearing houses still. You don't have to have futures exchanges or commodity exchanges per se, but you will probably need centralized financing operations or, or rule making. Uh, At some level, yeah, to protect yeah. people. Yeah. Do you think that, what, what do you think that looks like? Do you think that like tokenizing lots of wheat, for example, would be a part of it by necessity? Or do you think that that maybe they'd figure out another way to do it? Or do you think that maybe is the best way to do it? Um, well, I don't know that you need to tokenize wheat. I'm not sure what that means, but there is, I mean, what I, one, but along those lines, yes, it, it, it does go along, along those ways. So that, for example, a lot of commodity, a lot of commodities are under leveraged, you know, they, they sit losing, slowly losing value in warehouses and, um, grain elevators and things like that. And there is some financing on, on these things, but it tends to be very cumbersome. The DeFi thing might not help all that much because the real problem still is, you know, you've got wheat, it is in a certain location. Somebody else has to attest that that wheat is there. I mean, you can do this with monitors, but you all, but and sensors and things like that that can measure things. But those things can be tricked out too. So you have to have a system so that you're still going to have a, a bit of a messy system or, you know, what in telecommunications they call the problem of the last mile. I mean, getting that, getting down to real things. Yeah. Um, but it could add a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's about going to do it for this episode of the Crypto Markets Wiki podcast and this year, 2020. Which what has a been year a great been. year. A great oh, the best. Just... Just fantastic. But uh, as far as the crypto space, yeah, who knows? Do you, do you want to tempt fate and make, make a, a starry-eyed prediction for 2021, Tom? I, I personally think that uh, Bitcoin is going to reach $10 million billion and everyone who invested early is going to get a pony, which will be totally paid for by Satoshi Nakamoto, who probably owns 70% of all Bitcoin in circulation. Yep. Um, no, I think um, I think Bitcoin price will continue mostly upward. The There's bull market no, certainly doesn't seem like it's going to stop anytime soon, at least right right now. But yeah, the different one difference between this run up and the other one, the the last one, twenty seventeen, is that nobody really is talking about buying Bitcoin in order to use it as a currency. Yeah, it's only being marketed as a store of value and comparing it to gold and that yeah and it has some attributes as a store of value i guess it is easier and cheaper to play around with than gold than actual gold so it has that going for it but as long as there i mean this is the greater fool theory of pricing and that is people will continue buying bitcoin because they think that a, other people are going to continue buying Bitcoin, and B, that at a point in the future when they need cash, there will be somebody, another even more foolish person. You know, I bought it at 20000 There's going to be somebody out there who will buy it from me, 30000 yeah. And I think that has a, a, a way to go. There's huge liquidity in the financial markets, meaning there's lots of money sloshing around Bitcoin Bitcoin can get the 30,000 pretty easily, I think. You think so? Yeah. yeah. No, I don't know what's going to stop it. Yeah. 
I, I, I think that, I mean, I was being facetious before, obviously. I, I'm always, you know, the thing I always like to say is like, if you, if you think that you know how the market's going to perform in terms of the cryptocurrency market, you're already in trouble. But, you know, I've been wrong before. So maybe, maybe it'll make it 40,000. Who knows? Ooh, yeah. I, I feel we'll like, we'll yeah, we'll see. But, uh, well, one thing's for sure. This, is, this has been another great episode of the Crypto Markets Wiki podcast. We are going to sign off for 2020, and we'll see you in 2021. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. For more news, videos, and podcasts like this, head over to johnlothiannews.com.